Hello, and welcome to SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors, and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. Today, my guest is the archaeologist, historian, broadcaster, and author, Neil Oliver. In this bumper-length episode, Neil and I have a wide-ranging discussion of Britain's social, cultural, and political landscape. We talk about the nature of patriotism and community, the crisis of individualism, the narrowness of identity politics, and the need for human beings to belong. Enjoy the show. So, um, viral plagues, um, economic feudalism, uh, we've got people ripping statues down, uh, we've got thought police and public confessions, and I think all of this has uh, an historical ring to it. So the first question is, um, can history provide us with any lessons or warnings about what we're going through? And if it can, what are they? Goodness, what a big question. Um, I think, you know, there's a quote, uh, it's usually attributed to Mark Twain, but I don't think anybody's really sure who actually said it for the first time, but it's this idea that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Um, and I think if you're, if you have even a, a passing interest in history, far less, you know, if you're fascinated by, by history and you read a bit, you start to see that there are patterns that do seem to come around and around. It feels like a, a turning wheel. Uh, from from comfort to discomfort and all the way back round again. P people only seem to put up with one way of being for a certain amount of time and then there's a, a, a desire for change that's either met or suppressed or whatever. Um, I think uh, there are many ways where you could see repeating patterns, but I think it's also at the same time, it's very important to address the idea that we're, we're living in very unusual circumstances at the moment. This idea, I think a lot of the trouble the anxiety and the anger is an inevitable consequence of, of people being locked down. You know, I think we have to, fail, as well as looking for messages from the past, I think we have to look at uh, this very unique situation that we're in. Pe people have been, have faced pandemics before, of course they have. People have, you know, the Black Death and, uh, the, you know, the great flu that, that followed the First World War. There are, you know, there are many precedents for, for diseases that come in and, and, and wreak havoc on society. but. We're in this very unusual, arguably unprecedented situation that people are facing a pandemic, but they're also uh, uh, connected to one another remotely by social media and all the rest of the technologies that have evolved in the relatively recent past. And I, I think it, it's, it's no surprise to me that there's uh, so much unpleasantness going on out there on social media and, and in the wider domain, because on the one hand, people are have lost physical connection with one another. We're not being confronted enough with the face-to-face -face reality of one another. And, that's a, and it's a civilizing presence, being face-to-face -face with a fellow human being. You know it is. It's, it's the difference between being in your car and being annoyed by what another car driver does and you honk your horn and you shout and swear in a way that you simply wouldn't if you were face-to-face -face with that person. If you even just wound down your windows you, you probably wouldn't behave in that way. And so people are locked down at the moment. Uh, they're, they're, they're feeling all sorts of anxieties, but at the same time, they have this opportunity via social media to be as nasty as they want without consequences. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot in that. And I think a lot of people have commented that we're in a, we are in a, a unique situation. We've never had this combination of things. So we've never had 
social media picking up an event in the United States and then uh, spreading it right around the world, never even see it. And often it's not fully contextualized. And you have that combined with the pandemic and then bang, you're, you're, you're in trouble. But I think that's true, but it's also a lot of the ideas behind some of the social justice um, uh, movement and some of the social movements we have, have very long tails. I mean, tails all the way back to the 60s and beyond. And I think um, certainly if we, we seem to be taking a lot of this from the United States. And I think a lot of the um, political upheavals and the sort of moral panic we, we have at the moment, racialized politics and so on, goes back a long way. And uh, I think it's partly to do with um, what, what I might call elite overproduction. Just the fact that we've had a lot of, I mean, you know, you, in a university attendance is up to sort of 50% in most Western states. And you have uh, a whole generation of people being put out into the job market and there aren't any jobs. So you think there's a, do you think there's a link there? Oh, I think people, there must be uh, allowance made for the fact that people's generations coming up are having, you know, as, aspirations and, and ambitions encouraged. You know, they're, they're following, you know, all sorts of subjects at university in the, in the completely understandable expectation that the future ahead of them, the life and career ahead of them will, will take advantage of what they have been uh, encouraged to and allowed to acquire at university. That's being thwarted because it, it does seem obvious that I think most people probably of, of our generation, maybe older, that there can only ever be a finite amount of jobs out there or careers out there uh, that, that require the kind of hyper-specialised education that, that traditionally was obtained from university. We've, we've only ever needed a certain number of graduates. Maybe 10% of the population would need, or, or the professions would, would require that kind of training. Uh, and, and, and in any event, it, it, there's also the problem that it's been, having a, a university degree has been, has been elevated to the point where if you don't have one, there's something wrong with you, which is a terrible wrong, because it's only one way to go. And my father-in-law, for example, uh, is, uh, was, before he retired, uh, a rotating machinery engineer. And he worked most of his professional life in the oil industry. Uh, but when, when he left school, he was trained in the, in the coal mines. He was a colliery engineer. Uh, so he was, a, he was a man who worked with his hands and with tools. Uh, from time to time, there was an element of college work that went with that. But in the main, he learned on the job. And uh, he is, a, I've spoken about this before, he's a man whose abilities I admire almost like no other. He's cognitively very, very clever anyway. He's a very bright thinking man who thinks across a, a broad range of subjects. But his uh, genius was brought out by being trained to work physically with his hands. You know, he expresses the best part of his intelligence by the by the uh, the on the tools training that he got as a colliery engineer and then and then as a rotating machinery engineer in, in the oil industry. And the idea that, that someone would think that he is in any way contributing less and less valuable because he's not a degreed man is absolutely absurd to me because in truth, most of the time in, in day to day life, I feel I'm standing in his shadow because he has so many more practical uh, abilities than I have. And, and most of the time I end up holding the end of the bit of wood that he's cutting. Yeah, but they're intellectual as well. I think you make a brilliant point. I, I, about 10 years ago, I went back to 
I was wanting to do philosophy and I didn't do that as a first degree. And I went back to Durham and did it. And, but I was running a, a fully mechanized car wash in, in the Northeast at the time. And I, I quite often I would, I'd go to, uh, you'd be doing a, a Phil seminar with, you know, world leading philosophers. And then in the afternoon, I'd be back at the wash and we'd have an intermittent fault. And who do we turn to? We turn to an old uh, uh, marine engineer who intellectually to solve that intermittent fault would be going through very, very sim uh, similar things that we'd talk about in philosophy. You know, uh, I, I, we've underestimated and devalued vocational and real work, no doubt at all. And I think uh, we've got ourselves into a bit of a pickle. I don't think it's socially useful to have 50% of people funneling through university. And I think we're, to get back to this moment, I think the difficulty is uh, there never was the good life in inverted commas, the executive life for 50% of the population. And, but there used to be a holding pool for people and you know, who'd graduated with, with non-specific vocational degrees. And the holding pool was working at Pret or working at, you know, behind a bar. And they'd do that for a few years and then go into something else. But, but now even the holding pool's gone. Yes, oh, oh, of course. I mean, I read, was it today or, or yesterday? I'm losing track about um, uh, Pret closing a thousand plus uh, properties and there's, you know, the, the, you know, the consequential job losses that, that go with that. And I read all the time in ways that bring a great bubble of anxiety into my chest about people are expressing it in different ways, but along the lines of London might be beyond saving. Now, that's, of course, of course, you know, cities exist for as long as people share that idea. Uh, and London will go on in some in some form. But but many economically minded people are saying that the hit that the, the, the city of London has taken with people being locked away out of the, it might be a very, very long time, a big struggle to, to resuscitate that. Because people, as well as the, you know, the professions, maybe finding that all their people can work from home and they don't need to rent and pay for the maintenance of all these buildings in the city, that takes away all the ancillary stuff. The sandwich shops, the coffee bars, the pubs, the, the, the people that maintain the buildings, the cleaners, the security people, the, people that, the plumbers, the people that come and fix the things inside the infrastructure of the building, all of that goes. And if you if you if you imagine if you imagine a place like London as being like a giant uh, uh, ship at sea, you know we all know that, or, in, or we all instinctively know that if you if you turn off the engines of a great ship at sea, getting that beast started again is is a real problem, especially because the ship is now at the mercy of the three dimensional action of the ocean, which is effectively the storms of of economic reality, and we stalled our big ships of state in open sea and now the question is can you get the engines turning over again or not big question i i, I went back to london uh, last week for the first time since march and i met met a lot of people and uh, it was an eerie experience in some ways i met up with a couple of economists that advised the sdp and they said pretty much flat that the office structure the sort of ecosystem the city uh, had is not coming back. Interestingly, they weren't so concerned. The financial ecosystem will survive. They they think, but it's it's migrating or returning, I guess, to to the the suburbs. You know, so Kent, Surrey, Sussex, Hertfordshire, all of that will do probably very well. But you're in for a massive, almost like a sort of landslip, uh, decentralisation 
uh, and, and, and to get back to the States, it, as my first degree is in town planning. We studied um, a, a brilliant book by Jane Jacobs called The Life and the Death of the Great American Cities, which was all about downtown uh, functions migrating to this donut on the edge. And of course, that pretty much happened. And a lot of, you know, Cleveland, Ohio and Philly and to some extent, New York, all that, that recovered. Never, never recovered from that suburbanization, and I, I think that's probably where we are. Do you think there's something in that? Yes, um, you mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, your initial question was whether there are lessons from the from history from the past, um, and I think people worried at the time of the Industrial Revolution, there were people who who questioned the wisdom of migrating the rural population en masse into these clustered places that became the great industrial cities, uh, and for sure, they were right to be worried because, you know, for the longest time, the people that were pulled in from the from the rural world uh, went, went into lives of misery. You know, you know, what developed there were awful jobs in unsafe factories, dreadful living conditions, the slums. You know, if, if anyone who's looked at something like, you know, the road to Wigan Pier, where George Orwell describes what life was like for the miners within living memory. I mean, we're only talking about mines in the 1920s and 30s. And the, the lifestyles that he describes for those people who were so employed, it, it, it's un, unbearable to imagine the reality of those people. So the, we worried at the time when people were, were migrated en masse into the cities about what the consequences uh, would be. And now, now, of course, with what has happened in the last six months or so, I, I, I suspect the, the migration out of the cities might be, as you're describing, irreversible and, and someone like me and I think someone like you you want to be optimistic in your outlook you know you don't want to talk doom and gloom all the time this is another very dangerous um, there's, a, there's a, a sucking tide of of negativity out there at the moment which you, you kind of have to swim as hard as you can away from and perhaps if there is a migration out of the cities we should see the positive in that because I think a lot of what has been you know, modern time anxiety and stress and unhappiness that people have had is because the, the promised land of the cities and these dream jobs, it doesn't exist and there is no reality to it. And the, and the, and the reality for many people living in the cities was miserable jobs and for two hours at each end of the day. And maybe if people can get out into the, and be spread again out into the, into the hinterlands, and re-establish communities where they, under, where, they, where they meet with people, talk with people, and, 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 and understand a smaller, more manageable group of people and, and have shared endeavors in, on a smaller scale, that there might be much more in the way of satisfaction and even economic survival to be found there. Wigan Pier has very strong parallels with um, Edwin Muir, the Orcadian poet, his account of his life. Now, he was on a little island called Wire, in between Rousseau and mainland, and uh, his family were fine. It was almost like an idyllic um, upbringing. You know, they were eating lobsters and herring and all the stuff from the farm. And then uh, the landowner kicked them off. They got a farm down near Kirkwall, and then they, that didn't work out. And a lot his parents ended up in Glasgow with many of his brothers and sisters. And it's a horrific experience. I think in something like within three or four years of them going, uh, his parents were dead, something like two or three of his siblings were dead. It was literally like, I know, you know, obviously poets idealized, but reading that account of Ed Edwin Muir is like going from heaven to hell at the time. So when I walk around 
um, Scar Bray or, or you know, visit Mays Howe or, or go to the Brock of Gurness, these archaeological sites, which are that old. Um, it always brings to mind the, the, the sort of basic human architecture being social groups, you know. And I think one of the things that we're missing uh, currently is that um, to get here, to get where we are here, depended on uh, basically survival units, which might be, you know, the very small scale family. And then it might be a, a small community like Brock of might be 150 people. But curiously now, because of the sort of cultural turn towards the individual that we've had over the last 30 years, which is quite new, um, the way we look at history, the way we look at everything is the individual. And I think, do you agree that we, we've forgotten about the community, we've forgotten about the survival group, the importance of family and things like that? It's, I think it's definitely true that as a species, as, as an animal, Homo sapiens, uh, is best able to deal with a, a, a relatively small group of connections. You used the figure of 150. And I, I think other writers of one sort or another have, have co sort of coalesced around that figure, more or less, as though that's really the maximum number of meaningful uh, relationships any individual might have in terms of being able to sort of track what, what those other individuals are up to, who they're married to or who their partners are, just general chit-chat and gossip. You can, you can pay attention to about 150 people. That seems to be, that seems to be generally understood. Uh, and, I, and I think it is vitally important that we remember the necessity to maintain those groups. And with, with social media and technology, a, a, an illusion has been created. People are being encouraged to think that they can have meaningful connections to thousands of people, thousands of followers on, on, uh, on Twitter or, or, or all sorts of uh, connections and friends on, on Facebook. But it is an optical illusion and you don't really have a meaningful relationship with those people. And, and, and in fact, on the, on the contrary, I think it's part of what is destabilizing and causing anxiety for people. Because in the past, you mentioned you know, 4,000 years ago, your farmers on Orkney or whatever, uh, or, 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 or farming in any terrain. Uh, if you were looking on at your neighbor uh, at, and he or she seemed to be doing better than you, you know, having bigger harvests or, or having more success with their animals, uh, you might briefly feel jealous, worried about why they were doing better. But, you could, but because you actually shared the same uh, uh, terrain and environment, you could realistically look on, observe what they were doing and copy them and catch up, keep up with the Joneses, literally. You could, you could make whatever adjustments they had made onto your farm and you'd, you'd feel better. But now we're watching via social media, uh, people that are on the other side of the world, uh, whose circumstances are unimaginably different from, from ours, and who may not even be real. You know, people present artificial, fake, fictional lives on social media that they may not even be living, and yet we're trying to comp compete. And you can't, because they're not just over the wall in the next field, they're in another time zone, in another environment, in another part of the world. And, and you also mentioned, you know, we're, we're being affected by, the, by so much unrest in, in the United States of America. And again, we're watching it through one screen or another. And our, our paleolithic emotions are being triggered as though that danger was right here in front of our faces. And it's not. What's happening in America is happening in America, on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, in another time zone. 
and, and, and we're, but we're reacting to it as though, the, as though the lion was right here in front of us, threatening us in real time. Yeah, there's a lack of, there's an, it's a, there's an inability to contextualise things properly. I mean, that's the, uh, and danger and risk in particular, we can't do that. And uh, we're, we're probably not able to really compute very, very large numbers. But there's still this thing that, as you rightly say, that you, you're connected to, you know, thousands of people. And yet, really, in terms of, you know, proper friendships and relationships, uh, you can only, you can only have a few friends and you can only live in a, a reasonably small community. But I think the odd thing is that social media has made people incredibly uh, self-absorbed. So despite having all this you know, networking going on, people are increasingly obsessed with themselves and they forget about just wider communitarian things. They forget about their, their fellow citizens and so on. I think someone, I, I was hearing a talk about a year ago and someone mentioned the point that um, the selfie as a thing is basically, you know, this preoccupation of taking, you know, 20 photographs of yourself per day and posting them into the ether. That's the sort of emblem of, of where we are, but it's, that's actually uh, a, a very negative and very isolating experience. Oh yes, uh, I, was, I was filming, uh, I, I made a documentary uh, about China, uh, specifically about the experience of Scots in China, uh, I mean, a couple of years ago now. And for part of the filming, we were at the Bund in Shanghai, which is a major destination for tourists because you're looking across the water at the bright lights, big city, and it's very spectacular. You know, all the neon and the tower blocks all lit up at night. It's very, it's very impressive. Uh, and we were there for filming and doing a bit of storytelling, but we all became hypnotized almost literally by the number of people, especially younger people, young, beautiful people who were standing with their backs to the view. And, and preparing for selfies that, that they were taking of themselves or that their friends were taking of them. And we would walk, the, we were walking, you know, the length of the, of the promenade. And an hour later, we were coming back and seeing the same people still in the same place, still trying to get the perfect selfie, oblivious to the whole point of being on the boon, which was to look at the view. And we, we, were, we were talking to each other and saying, you know, is this peak selfie? You know, that, that people are turning up at places and, and without paying any regard to the place that they have traveled far and tried to get to, all they want is to prove that they were there. Yeah, and it's absurd. I mean, actually, it's not, uh, no, uh, it's not wrong to say that someone that goes on holiday like that hasn't, hasn't actually visited the places they've been to. They've never noticed them. They've never, never had any time. And it's one of these, it's just the same as, as the fact that with all these uh, labor-saving devices, people, people have less time now than they ever have. But I think we, I think I agree, Neil. I think we should be positive about change and 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 try and take the silver linings from it. And I think uh, actually, on a community level, um, there is scope for uh, people to produce again. I mean, I think certainly think as a country, we should reorientate ourselves and start thinking about a domestic focus in terms of production. We let manufacturing get down to something like twelve percent. Far too low imports are far too high and so actually a government that realized that and a society that realized that um i think it would be very beneficial to do that switch and one uh, i think another silver lining from the lockdown and the pandemic is that people have had a chance to think about things and as you say a lot of historical patterns it was the case that you know uh, every pub brewed its own beer and then you got consolidation and drays and so on and then you get mega breweries and and, no, and actually but we're going back aren't we we're going back to bakers baking bread locally and uh brewers making 
beer in craft uh, pubs, you know. And so maybe there's a reorientation there, and I think that that would be very good. But I agree, we're stuck with tech, and and you can't you can't uninvent it. You've got to try and find a pocket, a space for people to to live the best lives they can with what we've got. I think there's something uh, insidious out there. Uh, it, it manifested itself a, a little bit around, say, something as trivial sounding as, as all the fuss around um, land of hope and glory and rural Britannia. And that was that was very quickly being condemned as pro-imperial, you know, harking back to colonial times. When in fact, I would have argued, I would argue that really people gathering in the, in, the, in the Royal Albert Hall and singing those songs were just seeking to express joy and pleasure in being together nobody was actually meaning the lyrics whatever however you interpret the lyrics whether you think they are about empire or whether they are whether they are just about celebrating human freedom um, in any event people were just enjoying bellowing out this, the song at the top of their voices because it was a it was a coming together of people in a in a in a memorable place and time but it was being condemned and the, and the message seems to be no no you mustn't you mustn't imagine yourself to be a group at all you must you must you must you must accept this this idea that we're all just part of a global uh, hive this this global entity and, and it's it's insidious because i think people do have a completely understandable and healthy desire to be part of a community and it's not groupthink and it's not identity politics People, where I live, I live, I live in Stirling, and you know, I live in a neighbourhood of Stirling, and we get a great deal of pleasure from the, from a lot of the people around us. You know, we've established relationships with neighbours. Our kids all go to the same state schools here. Uh, you know, there's a park where we'll meet on a Friday afternoon in, in decent weather, and we chat. And uh, there's a there is a community here, and it's and it's a very healthy idea. And I think. Uh, People should be encouraged to celebrate and think of communities, not not not, not group think. And and therein lies a, a basis, a, a seedbed for something very beneficial for everyone. You, you talked about the the, the globalisation and the, uh, the the way in which you, lockdown clearly showed uh, the the weaknesses of globalisation. You know because we weren't able to get our hands on anything because the the production point for face masks or medicines was thousands of miles away and we we didn't have that capacity ourselves so so lockdown showed the the, the weaknesses in globalization and highlighted the importance of paying attention to to local production and, and 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 maintaining the local infrastructure but i think it's 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 important that people aren't bombarded with these messages that to celebrate community is in any way wrong well, there's only certain types, only certain species of community which are not tolerated by the, the, the modern progressive. And actually one of them is um, uh, nation states. You know, they're, they're dead against nation states. They want this idea of uh, literally global citizens you know, or society of individuals. Um, and yet there's a paradox there because they're keen on, on promoting that. But actually, ID politics and very aggressive ID politics is is a similar species of that. It's a very aggressive form of um, uh, of tribalism, I think. And I, 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 there's a sociologist called Steve Quilly from Canada who I quite like reading, who argues that ID politics is basically uh, creating a, 
a sort of re-tribalization in the West, you know. And I think, I mean, you've said before, uniquely uh, in our history, we seem to have lost confidence in defending what you, you might describe as, um, as Western modernity. You know, the, what you, you, you've said in previous interviews, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, freedom of thought and inquiry, uh, established property rights and individual rights. For some reason, uh, uniquely now, we have very few people prepared to defend that. What, why do you think that is? The word that you used there uh, that kind of uh, I paid attention to is paradox. I, I think it is, um, a, we're in a, a paradoxical situation because on the one hand, you and I, I am certainly talking about the value of, of community and um, which is a group, but we're, we're also, we're also at the same time and paradoxically being uh, wary of groupthink and globalization. So you, you find yourself with a foot in both camps and, and I find it hard myself to express exactly what I mean about there, there, is, a, there is a level of community and a, and a coming together of individuals uh, that is on, only natural and, and only good and, and is organic and happens without anyone seeking to drive it. And then there's the, the groupthink of identity politics, which, which does encourage or it tries to encourage people to see themselves uh, lumped together into groups that are being defined by others. You know, you're white or you're black or you're gay or you're straight or you're, or you're white and gay or you're or black and straight or you're black and straight and poor. And, and, and those, those definites, so you end up, if you, if you follow identity politics logically, you end up back at the individual because every individual is unique. That's a, that's a fact. You, you know, if you allow for every variation in it, you, you know, there are no... There are no groups. It's a confusing and a paradoxical situation. Uh, but I think that people know, pe people, I believe that, that most people are good and decent and to be trusted. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to function. I couldn't go out into the world if I thought, if I thought most people out there were not decent, ordinary folk. And there's not enough... Uh, coming from the top or coming from the leadership to, in, to encourage people to think like that, to encourage the local organic good nature that's in people. Everything's being criticised. Everything that's just organic and, 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 and ordinary in the way people want to be is being dissected and atomised so that it can be reconstituted in another way that, that suits somebody else's aims and objectives. Not the, not the natural objectives of the community. And you, you, you mentioned that, that line about, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I still think that is the best idea that anyone has ever had for a society. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is attributed to Francis Hutchison, chair of moral philosophy in Glasgow University in the, in the, in the early part of the 18th century, whether or not that's true. The point is though, it hasn't been realized or only imperfectly. But, I, you know, America is clearly like anywhere else, like any complicated society, it has its faults. But at least it tells itself that its objective, its, its aim, its dream, is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that is a brilliant idea. And people should be encouraged to aspire to that idea. 
because it's a good one. I totally agree with you. I think it's basically Western modernity is the best form of society. And I think one of the oddest things about the current uh, crisis in confidence in the West is that the people that criticize it and knock it down and um, critique it so hard um, forget that, I mean, I would always ask, what are you comparing it to? Compared to what? What's the historical context to what you're saying? If you compare, you know, the British Empire, compare it with other empires. Maybe that's a good way of looking at it. Um, and in any case, uh, on all indicators that are published, empirical data, most Western societies are pretty free, pretty fair, and have achieved a great deal. And I just think it's, it's a real pity that so few uh, people in public life, and you saw this with the, 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 the fall of the institutions in relation to anything that BLM says this time around, they all, they all you know, said yes, and basically will fall behind that without critically assessing what BLM was saying, the organization, not the, the wider movement, was saying. And, and, and that's basically fear. And there seems to be an almost uh, a complete inability to defend um, the foundational values of the West, which I think is a problem. Yes, I, 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 will, you know, I will stand up in court or I put my hand on the Bible and declare or hand on my heart or whatever. I've, I've said it up and down the country, uh, you know, when I've been doing public speaking, that I regard the British Isles as being the best place in the world in which to live. And if not the best, then I challenge anyone to come back at me and say somewhere that is, that is better. And at the same time, I, I accept that it's an imperfect place because it's, it's, the, it's the construction of imperfect and flawed human beings. And so by definition, anything we build will always be flawed because we are, we are incapable of perfection. But the traditions and the, uh, the, and the way of life that has been possible in these islands for let's, you know, a hundred years, a couple of hundred years is better, in my opinion, than anything else that's on offer. If you, if you go, if you travel a bit, if you travel a bit, there, there, you know, there are maybe 20 or 30 countries on the face of the earth where you could even hope to have a life recognisable in terms of the one that's, that's possible and available here. It's not, it's, not, it's not achieved by all, it's not. Many people fall through the gaps and, and have miserable existences, but there are maybe 20 or 30 places out of 200 countries on the planet where this kind of freedom, this kind of tolerance, this kind of opportunity, this kind of space to be whoever you want to be is at least possible. You know, I, I, I toured a book over the last couple of years and I was in 60 or 70 theatres up and down the country, England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And I would start out every night basically by saying, before I say much more, I want you to go away from here remembering this much, that I think this is the best place in the world. I've travelled a bit and I, and I know it's weaknesses and imperfections as much as anything else but I, I, I love it like no other and I think it's you know I'll hold my hand up and say there's no better place to give you a better chance in life and from 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 Inverness to to you know to Bristol to uh, even in even in Dublin and in Belfast and in the it people people cheered and if they didn't cheer they very much at least gave that sentiment a warm round of applause and you think expressing and a simple, almost childlike love of country, not, not nationalism, love of landscape, love of culture, love of the traditions that cherished your parents and your grandparents and that are now cradling you, 
is human nature. Jordan Peterson, amongst others, but perhaps he, he speaks it very fluently. He, you know, he goes on about the fact that we've got enough rights. It's about responsibilities. And that, and that, that is such a simple, once someone says that out loud, we've got all the rights that you could usefully carry in this country. You know, broadly speaking, you can be whoever you want to be. And up until relatively recently, you, you were able to say pretty much whatever you wanted to say, but that has definitely been eroded. But the, but the point is to take responsibility for some of it and to see that it's, you can't keep just asking for more rights. You have to take the rights that you've got and be responsible for them. That's where the, ultimately you've got to do some theory. You've got to think about how the group works because the, I totally agree with you, the, you know, aggressive sort of blood and soil nationalism has been a stain on history. But on the other hand, love of country, patriotism, a sort of softer, allegiance is is what most people feel and it's it's healthy to feel that but i think defense of the nation state is also important because it's so disparaged people don't realize that without that's the highest level i think that you can convene solidarity to do stuff together so i don't think you can there you know the national health service is a national health service you can't really do an international one you can't do an eu one because there's no real sharing there's no people don't buy in germans aren't going to pay greek bills we found that out so a lot of the utopian projects beyond that threshold are just that. They're just, they're not going to work out. So you've got, if you, a point we always make in this party, which is the sort of left wing bit of it, certainly, is that if you don't have the solidarity, you won't get the sharing. Simple as that. And if, if you want a society, which is, I think is where the States is going, where it's little pockets of individuals, uh, then go for that. But, you, but that's not what most people want. And you miss out on the efficiency and the good of doing things together. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, and for me, the, the kind of it's and it's so difficult because groupthink and identity politics have so corrupted the idea of togetherness and have corrupted the idea of what what a useful individual actually is. They've somehow pulled off the neat trick of celebrating the hive but atomizing people at the same time and i can't quite put into words or even think how they've done that they've undermined the hive that's the thing that they're, they're, they're pulling bricks out and not like all proper utopian revolutionaries they're pulling things apart without knowing what they're going to reconstruct so the pro the sort of progressive project you've had over the last certainly 30 years but really 40 or 50 or 60 years is to dismantle the you know religion i'm not particularly religious but dismantle religion um dismantle the family unit get rid of nation states and then later on get rid of uh, the idea of biological sex you know man and woman and it's uh, it, you know it, if you if they had an idea of where they were going with this maybe you'd, you'd give it some credit but it's very destructive and it's not clear how you can reassemble i think what you're in for in the states is is and we'll get it eventually if we're not careful it's just complete me, 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 atomization. Nothing, you know, no sharing in the end. The late great, the late great Roger Scruton, you know, his thing about, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the exhilaration of destruction and the, and the boring, slow process of building. It's absolutely right. And you never ever hear from the Black Lives Matter group to the rioters in the street that their first instinct when they, when they, when they claim to protest about or demand a better world 
is to smash their neighbor's windows. And they never see what they're going to replace it with. They just say what you've got is inherently evil and wicked, and we're going to smash it down. But they never say, and this is what we're going to replace it with, that is functional, never mind better. But it's also, these are staples. I, you know, iconoclasm and statue smashing is, is those are the staples in history of tribal warfare. That's what you do when you, when you overrun a tribe. You destroy its uh, foundations. You destroy, uh, you know, where people were together, you know. So every, every religious uh, monument is smashed. Every civic monument is smashed. Create something new. So I, they are quite troubling times, I think. But you, all of this runs, the, the, the strength of what we're saying is that we don't have to change what we say for it to fit with the rest of society. Because most people do want to share most people do have an allegiance and a fondness of where they are and a warmth. And, and so you're, you, you, you know, you're not having to change anything. You, all you're doing is trying to give people a voice who currently don't have one. Um, and I think that's well worthwhile. It's funny, you, know, you, you talk about you know, not being a particularly religious person. I, I mean, I, I consider myself to be a religious person. But I, don't, I'm not, I'm not, I don't subscribe to any particular religion, but I, I find it eyebrow-raising that you, 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 I find myself drifting back to fundamental Christian tenets because you think, like, the, you know, the Sermon on the Mount or something. I mean, the very idea that rather than a, attacking your, your, your enemy, that you, you, you love your neighbour and that you, and you treat others the way you would want to be treated yourself. Uh, and, the sharing, and the sharing, you know, the, the bread and the fishes, which if you share, it, you know, the messages, it turns out there's more than enough. And... These, these fund, so you think you, sophisticated 21st century thinking says that, you know, that, that, that Christianity or, or Judeo-Christian or whatever is, is behind us. And you think, well, actually, if you take away the, 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 the theism and, that, and, the, and whether or not you believe in, a, in, a, in an omniscient presence in the sky, the, the functional tenets of Christianity are actually sound. No, they are. And no, all the sharing, the golden rule. And also, I've said before that the, uh, the fall as an idea, the fall of man as an idea, is a sounder idea than you get out of most um, progressives now in universities. In, in that it's a closer, um, it's a closer um, match to what human beings are really like, which are imperfect. It's like you, you, you've said in previous interviews, uh, the Solzhenitsyn quote, you know, that it's in all of our hearts, this stuff. And you've got, and that's, and unless you're aware of it, then you you don't have the warning. And the Judaic, I mean, the Judaic uh, sort of mystery teaching that God, well, it's in, the, it's in the Old Testament, that God invented evil consciously and put it into man because if it wasn't there, he wouldn't be able to recognize good. And you think, and that, that manifests itself later on in the Solzhenitsyn quote, but that idea that you have to internalize the fact that you're the monster. You've got to understand that you are, and you've got to understand that it, this is why really good art always brings this out. The, one of my favorite films is um, Bicycle Thieves, uh, it, uh, Italian, 1952. And it's about this guy who gets a job and, you know, and he, he's, he's doing well, he's looking after his family, someone steals his bike, and he's pushed through poverty and desperation at the end of the film to steal a bike off someone else. And one of the uh, lessons from the film is that actually most human beings have a point where they'll break like that. You know, an honest man looking after his family broke. 
and and the film director called it bicycle thieves not bicycle thief because in the end that's that's what happened you know check it out but it's a wonderful it's a classic film and there's so much wisdom in it but i yeah i mean i think um the you know christianity at its best i mean i i'm a church goer i what i do is i ran northumberland here i do a lot of cycling and and thankfully the churches are open again so i just go in and i, I look at the stained glass and i do some thinking and med a little bit of meditation you know and think of just take it in and looking back at it the fact that that collective um act was uh, was deliberately discouraged and taken away from people is clearly a terrible wrong it's left us orphans we're 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 in the west we're religious orphans there's something and it wasn't all about belief it was about belonging actually no that's what i mean you, 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 the, the, there is no doubt that but like i say whether or not whether or not you you're you're, you're opening up to the idea of, of a god the coming together in a church at the same time every week to to celebrate community to give thanks for the harvest to to welcome in infants to the to the body politic to you know to say farewell to loved ones and just to think about what's happened this week and what might happen next week to to do that communally is quite self-evidently such a a healthy thing for so many people to feel the need of and and that that was taken away during the course of the 20th century you think why on earth the way, I mean, it really has left the West um, in in trouble culturally. I think this is the root of a lot of things, um, and I I totally agree. I mean, coming together, one of the one of the things that organised religion, Christianity, did was that it 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 gave people a sense of where they were and also humility because there was something above you. You know, you weren't you weren't the the highest. Uh, you know, you weren't on, on top of the tree, as it were. The trouble with modern individualism and liberalism is that it puts the individual, the self, right at the top. And there's no, no wonder people are unhappy because there's, in their world, it's all about them, it's not about anyone else. And, that's, and so we've lost that. I predict, I predict that, that, well, that there's a very strong possibility that something of that might come back. Or, or at the very least, I think that, that a, 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 a spokesperson or a group or whatever entity was, had the had the nerve to to seek to resuscitate some of that might actually find themselves riding a wave a lot of the social justice movements we're seeing now actually are proto-religious movements that's what they are and they have all of the attributes of those they they have um this sort of cleansing the sort of confessional stuff smashing statues um, no forget no and, and they are right and everyone else needs to be destroyed and that you just see that look at any um of the religious wars that we've had but heresy's back heresy back the saints are back you know uh, uh, perdition is back you know you know david starkey you know in his sad story i was tangentially involved in he has been cast into utter darkness and if freedom to me if freedom is to mean anything it's the freedom to make mistakes if you say that you live in a free society it has to be the freedom to misspeak, uh, make mistakes, and to and to be and to know that redemption is available, and that as long as you pick yourself up and promise not to or to try to not make the same mistake again, you get welcomed back into the church. We've the tragedy is that everyone, if they stop for thirty seconds and think, knows that it always ends up in a bad place. No one wants to bring back the Spanish Inquisition, 
and yet they have brought back the Spanish Inquisition. If you said to the general population, do you want to bring back the Spanish Inquisition? Do you want to see people burned at the stake, tortured into confessions, and even when they confess, you still destroy them? Yeah, let's bring that back. And you say, well, it's back. It's here. The, the Spanish Inquisition is among us. It's identifying heretics. It's burning them at the stake. The whole concept of cancelling is, you know, the burning at the stake punishment was specifically devised so that not a shred of the person remained that could be, you know, a martyr's bone that could be worshipped. So it's gone. And that's cancelling. So you don't just you don't just give somebody a row. You take away their livelihood. They lose their home. Their relationship falls apart, and they, and they disappear. And you hope, frankly, that they go away and you know commit suicide. Yeah, and the, and the only I mean, the end game to that is that the only people that can uh, be honest in public discourse are the independent ones. You know, we we can as a political party because we're small and self-funded by our own members. No one owns us. We can we can basically say it as we see it. But that's true of individuals as well. The only people that could, if you if you have to make a living at the BBC, the BBC we get we get emails, we get contacted by people that work for Anti all the time and saying what a nightmare it is. I can't speak up. I'll you know I'll lose my job effectively. And and other institutions people say that. And the, the end game to that is that the only pe people that can speak are privileged people that ha are financially independent, don't have to be enthralled to. To, 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 to these people, but that's not a good situation either. Why not bring up the question of Scotland? Because this is, uh, you know, I'm mostly Scots by blood, although I was born in England. As a lot of my family are in Scotland, um, and obviously we've been through the uh, 2014 referendum. And uh, as a party, the SDP is, is, I would say, moderately unionist. We, we, we believe we are better together and we support the union. Um, and when Brexit happened, I, I I was fairly convinced that uh, Brexit would re would reduce the prospects of uh, prospect of Scotland breaking away from the union because I, I I thought that the it would increase the stakes in other words make and increase barriers to doing so and that was my uh, way of thinking and just recently I've been wondering whether I'm right where do you think we are on on Scots independence It's a very um unpleasant atmosphere in Scotland at the moment. Uh, well, and that, well, that depends very much, obviously, on your, on your point of view. If you are living here and you are uh, pro-independence uh, and you support the, 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 the Scottish government, then you are made to feel welcome and, then it's, and there's fr friendship ex extended from the, from the point of view of the nation of Scotland, as it appears. However, if you're someone who believes in the, the continuation of the United Kingdom, then I am made uh, aware every day and have been since 2014 that I am somehow the wrong sort of Scot and that my opinions are not just, uh, they don't just contradict the other side, they are actually wrong which is a dangerous evolution for me. It's one thing to, to disagree with someone, but to, but to move that disagreement into thinking that they are just wrong and therefore a bad person is a completely hopeless situation. So depending on whether you're pro-independence or pro-United Kingdom, 
you have a very different experience of, of being in Scotland. And one group can speak freely in, in, the, in the market square, if you like, and the, and the other group keep their mouths shut and their heads down. And the, and, the, and the group keeping their mouths shut and their heads down are those who, in the main, who are uh, in favour of the United Kingdom. But in a, in a more uh, sort of meaningful, I suppose, answer to, to your question, what, where we are, uh, the problem that I have is I think because opinion is, is so polarised, it's impossible to imagine uh, a, a free-flowing future. Uh, you mentioned Brexit. Now, one way or another, probably if you were to do some kind of poll again tomorrow, it's probably still somewhere in the 50-50 in favour of or against Brexit. You know, the numbers would come you know, nearer to 40, nearer to 60, but it's about half the population are in, are in favour, half the population are against. And similarly in Scotland, I would say it's about 50-50. It, it fluctuates a bit. And, and it's the same in, same in North America. For the whole of my lifetime, the, the divide between Democrat and Republican, it's 50-50. That is a very difficult situation for any nation to deal with. And the analogy that I always imagine is if you were flying a light plane, it's difficult enough. But if you have a dead elephant strapped to one wing, it's impossible. Now, so Brexit at the moment, you know, we've, we've left Europe, but you've still got about 50% of the population who are vehemently opposed to that idea. So how do you move forward with so much dead weight, or not even dead weight, weight pulling in the opposite direction? And likewise, in Scotland, you know, there was a referendum in 2014, it was you know, 45, 55, and the, the ill feeling has been perpetuated and, and stirred up ever since. And even if there was a referendum tomorrow on, on Scottish independence and the 50-50s and the tilted in favour of independence, you would still have approximately half the country pulling in the opposite direction. There's no way ahead. You can't, that, that intractable, the presence of that intractable, more or less half of the population means that you can't get anything meaningful done. Yeah, I, I think there's a blight. There's a, that's what I worry about in Scotland, that the issue just blights, you know, not only it's, uh, it poisons some of the politics, but it blights the progress of the country. Because if you were a, a CEO and you're thinking about putting a British headquarters, even a department, uh, would you know, are you likely to think, yeah, Scotland's a, a, a definite? You know, I, I think it, that's what worries me. I think unless you know where you are, it's it's forever unresolved and but i just think the other thing is that i think the pandemic and the cultural turn we're taking now i think is opening up this sort of fact and value divide thing where you know i don't i don't i can't see people being it's a bit like the brexit referendum i can't see people being buying the economic arguments and being because i think if scotland was independent it would, yes i mean it's, there's a fiscal deficit but it, scotland would 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 probably you know be okay in the long run. I think it, I, I believe in the country and 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 it's it's people to do that. Uh, so I don't think people are going to be cowed by economics so much as identity. And I think that's in a way that that's another thing that worries me. I think faced with another referendum, they, they might just say, okay, we're going for it, you know, and, and not and not be bullied by um, you'll be poorer. You'll be poorer is not really as relevant as it was. The, the the economic arguments in the face of Brexit, in the face of Scotland. I think one way or another, 
we have everyone in, in, in relation to into both of those topics has has to face up we have to face up the idea that it's not about economics anymore it's it's not about that and what but what troubles me is that it, it is very much about an anger that's drifting into hatred you read about you read on the on either side of the brexit debate and the 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 feeling of the one side for the other is increasingly disgust people are disgusted viscerally offended by the very existence of the people who have the other opinion that's that's increasingly the way it's crystallizing and it's the same around uh, Scottish independence or the, or the continuation of the United Kingdom. The two sides are not just disagreeing, they are viscerally hating one another. And then you look across the pond at, at the United States of America and it's, it's naked hatred that's crystallizing and indeed being stirred up, you know, so that you've got you know, Nancy Pelosi, you know, on, you know, being re recorded talking about, you know, uh, Republicans as domestic enemies. You know, and, and previously, you know, famously, you know, Hillary Clinton talked about the basket of deplorables. When senior political people, those who are supposed to be contemplating leadership, when they start categorizing half of their population as the enemy and something to be disgusted by, you think, how does a civilization move forward under those circumstances? So in, in my, in the country where I live, in Scotland, it's not that I worry about the economics. I, I, have, I have very grievous doubts about the short to medium term future, uh, but it's, it's, the, it's the hatred that troubles me. And it's, it's now, that, now that people are being encouraged to think, don't even listen to what that person says. They're just wrong and it's right to hate them. That is no basis for a civilization moving forward constructively. No, I think view, respect for other viewpoints is absolutely vital. And I think but also reading against your viewpoint is essential. I mean, it's something I, I try to do a lot. And, and, uh, uh, and actually, just and if, you, if you get a better argument and you're persuaded by something, you should go with it. Don't, but people, human beings have very strong tendency to belief maintenance, don't they? they, they that's their belief and they're going to hang on to it no matter what. But I, I mean, I totally agree. I think the, the center has to hold that we're, we're, we're doomed, you know, and I think the, the main task for uh, politics in the next generation is some sort of social reconciliation, which must start with uh, a respect that people hold different views for decent reasons. And if those, if people have different views, they're not to be demonized as, as bad people. But, uh, um, you know, that's what you've got. I, I smile inwardly a, a realization that I have about myself you know I'm 53 now and I look back over my life and I, I, I smile about the fact that I have never been cool when I look back at the at the, at the music that I used to like and the, the attitudes that I've had about things at different times uh, I've never been edgy I've never been you know that kind of I am a, I am of the I am middle of the road in the extremes between you know punk rock at one end and, and classical music at the other, I'm easy listening, you might say. And, and when it, I'm not a political animal. Over the last couple of years, I've been very much cast as a political animal, but 
to me it feels as if the tide went out and I was just left standing on the beach where I had always been but the tide was now miles out of sight I, I don't feel as if I've moved but now I'm characterized as a political animal but in my heart I'm just a middle of the road centrist person and it's not and the, the challenge for the center is it's not cool because it, it sounds like if you're not careful it sounds like vanilla it sounds like magnolia on your walls it sounds like neither one thing nor the other. Now, I don't agree that that's what it is because I'm much more subscribed to the notion of, you know, the sort of yin and yang, you know, that, that symbol that has white and black, but in the white there's a bit of black and in the black there's a little bit of white and there's a wavy line between the two. And it, 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 for followers of that, that symbol, the idea is that you try to follow that way. That's the down, you know, and actually, in, in that respect, it's quite philosophically cool because you're trying to you're trying to be held upright by the tensions pulling from the two extremes on a tightrope, and you need balance, and the balance is provided by having just enough of of either side. So I think being in the centre and walking the centre line is in fact a very sophisticated, actually a very cool way of thinking because it's tolerance, it's listening, it's having both ears open to both sides and making minute adjustments all the time in order to keep yourself on the path. And in the centre, because you've got both sides touching one another, that's where the interesting things actually happen. It is also where most people are. I mean, on the, on the surveys of political attitudes, the public do not separate neatly into this left-right uh, um, split. I mean, our politics in, in our party, the SDP, is, is actually a combination of, of blue and red and uh, we're perfectly happy to explain it i mean it's yeah it might seem complicated but we want a strong and effective state we're a little bit left wing on the economics but we're social conservatives and if you look at the data that's where most people are a little a little bit of um left and a little bit of right and it's a combination you know that's a sensible place to be but to your point about being sort of dragged into politics as a a non-political person i think this is become necessary for precisely the reasons I, I alluded to earlier, which is that no one is making the case. I mean, in, in our, you've got to defend some of our foundational values. And if politics and if politicians are too cowardly to do it and institutions don't do it, someone has got to step up and do it. And actually, I think the, the real danger for our societies is when uh, the general population, you can see it in the United States and see it throughout the West, where the general population start to lose uh, confidence in their politicians and their institutions, and then they start to lose confidence in their own future. And if that happens, we're in real trouble. So I think the fact that you can speak up and get involved, I think it's brilliant. I think more people should do so. I spoke a moment ago about smiling at myself. And another reason that I make myself laugh is I think, how on earth have we got to the point where I am saying these things in an increasingly high-profile forum. How on earth is it me? I can't believe it. My wife looks at me and says, you know, how, how has this happened to you? She supports what I'm saying, but she can't believe that it has come down to somebody like, you know, at the end of the day, I write some books that I, that I hope are, you know, would, be, would appeal to the, the general reader. Uh, I, I present some television series about history and archaeology, which are subjects that I love. And I, I, I'm, and I have pretty much middle-of-the-road attitudes to life and yet somehow I've, I've been I've, I've found myself standing up and saying things which to me seem inherent and obvious
obvious, but are coming across as incredibly controversial. And all I am, all I am basically saying is that I haven't changed. I grew up loving Britain. I consider myself to be British, born in Scotland, proud of Scotland. I'm proud of my accent. I'm proud of Scottish traditions and culture and comedy and music and all the rest of it. But I, I consider myself to be of these islands and I love this place. And, I, and nothing about that has changed for me. And I refuse to be encouraged to like one end of the island more than the other. I just have this feeling of, of, of belonging to the whole place, which and it's ground that I refuse to surrender. And if that makes me a controversial hate figure, well, I just have to, I just have to take that on the chin. But, but it's not, Neil. I think that it's wonderful you're doing it. And also, I think you, every time you speak up, and we find it too, that remember that when you're speaking up on these things, if you take a, a mainstream position, which you're doing, all you're doing is representing the mainstream majority. About, you know, the two, we, we, we constantly hear people agitating from the polls, from the sidelines, and from extreme positions. And there's not enough uh, just mainstream opinion. You know, the, and the BBC and a lot of other institutions have fallen to a very narrow, um, you know, hyper-individualistic, woke way of looking at it. But they're not representing the person in the street or the pub or in the factory. It's, it's, and someone has to speak up for them. So that's part of our project as well, you know. And, and on to uh, the British Isles. I mean, I feel it just because our family is mixed, you know, Scots and English. And I, I, I just think it would be a real tragedy and unnecessary. And I, I, I you know, I hope the union holds together. And I think it will probably just about. So, but, you know, having said, I think we should continue speaking up on all these things. There's one thing I suppose I haven't said, and, and it really it, it really does matter to me to say it. You know, on, on the one hand, I, I see, obviously, I'm aware of you know, what's being said on, on social media and, and, in the, and in the mainstream media, and I'm involved in some of it. And then I walk out into my, my town here, my neighbourhood and my high street and whatever, and it's the same place that it was 10 years ago. And I am on... I know I am on good terms with, and I am, you know, it's a warm place. And sometimes I think, what on earth, what is this parallel universe that exists online? Because when I step out of my door and mix with people, I'm, I'm still, I know I'm, I'm being reassured all the time by the people that I meet face to face that they agree with me. I, I know that, I, that what I'm saying is what a lot of people think. And I'm not, in, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not across the numbers, so I don't know whether I'm majority or minority. But, but what troubles me in, in, in many ways is that there's, there's a very um, uh, narrow uh, uh, perception of Scotland that's being broadcast to the wider world. You know, at the moment, you know, the, the First Minister is, is on television live every day uh, talking about the virus, but also talking about things political. And, I, and that, that the, the first minister and the, and, the, and the Scottish government they don't speak for me, although people are invited to think that they speak for Scotland. I know, I know that while they speak for a lot of people, a lot of people think like me, and my version of Scotland is not being transmitted at all, far less a, a, a comparable volume, and it matters very much to me to let the rest of the United Kingdom know that there are maybe millions of people like me that you're just not hearing from. And I'm not claiming to be right. 
And I'm not saying that the other group are wrong. I'm just saying that we are here too. We have different opinions and a different outlook. And it's important that the, that the rest of the United Kingdom continues to be aware of me and other people like me. Because I know for a fact from the reception that I get out in the street that a lot of people agree with me. They do. And you can easily have a, a majority opinion or, or a very large uh, section of the population thinking something. And for that, for you simply not to get, get through because uh, all of our uh, elite institutions, cultural institutions, broadcast institutions, are dominated and represented by a very, very small cohort, and that, that's a problem. Um, but someone has to do it, and Neil, if, if not us, then who? So I think, I think you just have to continue trucking, and, and, and it is getting through, actually. Uh, you know, long-form interviews like this are getting increasingly popular on, on, online, and, and people do get it if they look, look for it. So, listen, thanks very much for chatting to us today. I wish you all the best and just keep on going. Thanks very much. And like you, this, this idea of, of having the opportunity to have long, rambling, far-ranging conversations, I think, is a huge part of the salve for the soul that's so important at the moment. Thanks, Neil. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of SDP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at scp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.